Okay, then uh, good evening. We have here a famous uh, Catholic writer, intellectual, and political commentator, Mr. E. Michael Jones. It's nice to talk to you again. Good to see you, Tony. Good to be back in sunny Croatia okay. on the shores of the Adriatic. Yeah, it's, it's almost midnight here, so it's not, not, not that sunny. <laughs> okay, uh, what I wanted to talk to you about was basically uh, two main subjects. is uh, uh, let's say, the genetics and its uh, impact versus uh, this white identity and versus a bit say Darwinism and then if we could go into the other big subject is the relationship between nationality and the church or let's say the, the tribe and the church or the state and the church okay I did I just did a um, a book uh, called Logos Rising, uh, and uh, I sent it, uh, it's off at the printer, we should have copies at the beginning of March, I'm, I'm sorry, the beginning of April, and uh, the beginning of the book is uh, deals with the four atheists, uh, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, and uh, a man whose name I forget, uh, da da Daniel Dennett. And uh, what all four of these men have in common is an allegiance to Darwinism. In other words, Darwinism is the fundamental scientific underpinning of their philosophical worldview, which is atheism. Okay? And I tr what I did was try to examine Darwinism from a philosophical perspective. And so what you find, uh, what all of these men have in common is that they all claim that something can come from nothing. Uh, this goes back to a fundamental development in, in the history of philosophy, namely Parmenides. Parmenides was one of the pre-Socratic uh, Greek philosophers, and he was famous for saying, that which is cannot come from that which is not. So what you have in Darwinism is a constant assertion that that which is can come from that which is not, no matter how you look at it. So the, the, the classic, the, the biggest, the most egregious blunder in this regard was Dennett. He's the only philosopher in the group, and he said, the universe, the universe created itself out of nothing or something very small. That has got to be one of the most stupid, the stupidest statement in the history of philosophy. Okay, that a philosopher could make that shows the, the level of ignorance we have reached now. Okay, first of all, the universe cannot create itself out of nothing because, in order to create itself out of nothing, it would have to exist before it existed, and that is impossible. Not even God can do that because it's logically impossible. God cannot exist before God exists. The universe cannot exist before the universe exists. That's impossible. So it's wrong that in that regard. But the second part, I think, shows you the way they get around this difficulty. And, and he says he hedges his bet by saying, or something very small. Well, if it's something very small, then it's being. Then being is already in existence, which means you don't have to explain how it came into existence because it's already in existence. And this is the argument that get you, gets used in Darwinism by all of these other people. So, for example, uh, Dawkins says, tries to deal with the issue, how can you go from existence to non-existence? I'm sorry, from non-existence to existence, from nothing to something. Dawkins says, well, if you look at it as if it's one steep jump, well, it seems impossible. He calls this Mount Improbable. The one side of mountain probable is one sheer cliff, like in Makarska, the Makarska Verrier. Go right down to the ocean. But the other side is a gradual slope. And this explains how you can go by small increments from nothing to something. Okay, well, wait a minute. There's a problem here. Because in every small step, you are still going 
from nothing to something. So he tries to talk about the eye. Okay, so the have, we have light-sensitive cells, and they became uh, more complicated, and they developed this way, and, that, and then suddenly you have the eye. Okay, either those cells can see, in which case you have an eye, which is what you're trying to prove, or they cannot see, in which case you cannot go from that state to seeing. Every little step has exactly the same problem as the big step that you tried to stake on the other side of mountain probable, because in every stage of this development, you have to go from nothing to something, and you can't do that. This is the fundamental flaw with, with Darwinism. Excuse me. Hello. It's for you, Elisa. So that's, this is what they do. So in another instance, Dawkins says, well, suppose you had 49% of a wing. Let's talk about the wing. What does the wing do? The wing either allows the creature to fly or it does not allow the creature to fly. If it allows flight, it is a wing. If it does not allow flight, it is not a wing. So then Dawkins says, well, what about if you have 49% of a wing? Well, what if the bird fell out of the tree and he had 49% of the wing, that would aid him and he wouldn't hit ground so hard. Well, wait a minute, Richard. You just said it's a wing. You've already established the fact that it's a wing. The wing is in existence, and you're claiming this 49% of the wing. Even if it's 49% of the wing, it's still a wing. And so it's a circular argument. And this is the fundamental flaw, philosophical flaw, with Darwinism. That's the beginning of the book. Oh, nice to hear that. Well, the, if I understand correctly, uh, Darwinism realized that uh, there is a mutation that because of some small probability the 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 arm due to some changes in the molecule or something uh, mutates into something that is I don't know how much percent of a wing but uh, I just I was listening uh, one lecture from a from a famous Croatian professor uh, that was commenting on a, on an article uh, and the article says uh, if only if only Charles Darwin uh, knew uh, the book of his contemporary let's say scientist and the founder of, of the genetics uh, Gregor Mendel uh, that we, we would have a much more uh, let's say robust and, and and much more accurate and much more precise science of, of well, let, all right. Now let's let's that's that's true. But I mean, first of all, in order, what you're talking about is natural selection. Yeah. This is the mechanism that works. In order to have natural selection, you have to have something. Yes, you have to have two this things, and the process to select between the two. You have to be able to. In other words, you if if there's if there's no I, if there's nothing there, then you can't select for it. Well, what, well, maybe, well, what about intermediary structures? Well, there are no, there is no such thing as an intermediary structure when it comes to something like the eye or the wing. Either it sees or it does not see. If it sees, it is already an eye, in which case you don't have to prove how it came into existence because it already exists. If it does not see, it is not an eye. If it is not an eye, then it had, can have, the natural selection cannot work. Because the, 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 you could say a weak eye uh, and a strong eye, the strong eye will defeat the creature with the weak eye because it will see the prey first. But you have to have an eye to begin with. And you can't explain how this eye came into being according to natural selection because you can't go from nothing to something. Because if there's nothing there, the natural selection cannot work. So it's the same problem no matter how you look at it. You're always trying to explain how something can come from nothing, and natural selection selection cannot explain that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean what you're saying with Mendel is basically okay. There is we do have a mechanism, okay, and this is the way the mechanism works, and it functions according to these principles, and these are not compatible with Darwinism. And yeah, that's that's true. 
But it, the the problem is much more fundamental with Darwin than it is the, uh, than 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 we're generally recognizing. Yeah, I see. I, I understand. Uh, after after <laughs> if if somehow they they go around, they manage to go around the problem for coming from nothing to something. Uh, they still have the problem of of uh, of genetics because Mendel just established that. Uh, you have this uh, dominant and recessive genes, and no matter how much times, how how many times you you throw a recessive gene to a dominant one, it won't it won't pass through the next generation. So basically, uh, it turned out that this professor in this lecture said that uh, after after Darwin died uh, in his in, in the in the drawer of his of his desk. They found uh, Mendel's book, uh, the Versuche über Pflanzhybriden. <laughs> so he obviously knew <laughs> knew about Mendel, knew about his theory, but he immediately realized that he doesn't have enough time. He doesn't right. have enough time to 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 to, to, <laughs> to somehow circumvent this problem of being by throwing inside some kind of a spontaneous. Uh, mutation, but you have to. This mutation has to be dominant to have any effect. Right. And, and, so I mean, so it's just I mean, yeah. It's, it's it's too. Nobody has nobody has the time. It's too too, too time consuming. So he basically just kept the book in the drawer, and Mendel was was just sandboxed. He was right. forgot forgotten about. Right. The, the 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 fundamental issue here, uh, I try to point out here, is not evolution. The fundamental issue is atheism. As I said in the beginning, all four of these people were atheists. They claimed to be atheists. And they claimed that Darwinism supported an atheistic worldview. Okay? Well, it's true. There is, there is a correlation between atheism and, and Darwinism. But evolution uh, is not impossible. Evolution, in any sense, only becomes impossible if there's no God. Because without God, you cannot explain creation, first of all. And with God, there is no pro if, if there is the possibility of creation, then only God can do it. This, this became clear when Dennett said the universe created itself. They have to say that. They have to say something that is absolutely absurd because the only alternative to that is God created heaven and earth, which is the only plausible explanation of the existence of the universe. If you say God created heaven and earth, then you can deduce from that saying he probably created it according to a plan in his own mind. And that plan could certainly include change. It could include change because uh, it seems clear that there is change. This is the problem that Parmenides had. Parmenides could not explain change because he felt that nothing could add to being. If nothing can add to being, uh, the only thing outside of being is nothing. Nothing cannot add to being. So therefore, nothing can add to being. So therefore, there's no change. And then uh, Zeno wrote the paradoxes to defend Parmenides' teaching. Well, it's obvious that we have change. It's obvious that there is change. And so it was only Heraclitus dealt with that. He went too far in the other direction and said everything is change. Well, that's not that doesn't seem to be true either. That may be a caricature of Heraclitus based on uh, 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 Plato or Aristotle. But it seems that there is change. But it's not just change from nothing, uh, anything to anything. There seems to be a coherence here. And so if you look at something like an acorn, an acorn becomes an oak. Well, is that going from nothing to something? No, it's not. It's going from one form of being to another form of being. And Aristotle explained it by saying that the first form of being has potentia or dunamis or it has power. And the power is there in potential and as soon as you have the right conditions that power will unleash itself and become part uh, of something else that is a plausible explanation of evolution 
but it, it contradicts the idea of Darwinian evolution and natural selection and the atheism at the part of it, which makes any change impossible because it can't explain how anything can come into being. It cannot explain that because the only alternatives you have with Darwinism are being and non-being. So that this the real problem here is atheism. That's the real modern problem. Uh, and that sets the stage for all of the problems that followed from this from this change in attitude that took place in the West toward the uh, end of the uh, 19th century, when biology became the dominant form of science and biology, specifically Darwin's understanding of it, was to explain everything, including metaphysics, which you cannot do. You cannot use biology as a form of metaphysics. That's the problem with Darwinism. No, you have now this big movement to use biology to explain, uh, like say, social di diversity and uh, to explain politics and stuff in this white identitarian movement. That is also, well, it, it's, it seems that it's pushed upon Europe now. And yes, it is. The because America, America is the world... Uh, the rules the world and race was very important in America because it was an English colony that imported black slaves as labor. And so from the beginning, this racial distinction was important in America. It led to the Civil War. It is still important. It's a, a they are categories that have meaning over here that do not have meaning in Croatia. So, for example, uh, if this had meaning, if race had meaning, then the question would be, are Croatians white? My aunt, my aunt that lived in uh, in New York, uh, when she talked about the wasps, she referred to them as whites. <laughs> and I asked, "Wait a minute!" My aunt had was had uh, frighteningly blue eyes and and like blondish right. hair, <laughs> and she referred to the to the let's say uh, to the guys that uh, she was cleaning. Uh, the houses for as white, and then yeah. I, uh, I asked, "I mean white? Aren't we white?" And she said, oh, "No, I mean English." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so. The Polish did the same thing. They referred to uh, the Americans as white people, yeah. and then there was just an article in the New York Times that said, uh, "When did Italians become white?" Because it was clear that there was a certain time in American history when Italians were not considered white at all. If you read uh, Madison Grant's book, Madison Grant is the father of uh, American racism, racial theory. And he said there were three races in Europe, Teutonic, Mediterranean, and Alpine. Now, what he meant by that is not completely clear to me, but it was pretty clear that he did not believe that there was such a thing as a white guy. He didn't believe that Europeans were white. There were three separate races there, and only two, only one of them should be allowed into the United States, the Teutonic. The others should be kept out. And he, one of his greatest achievements, he felt, was the immigration law of the mid-1920s, which excluded uh, people from that part of Europe. His other great achievement was uh, give, convincing Hitler that uh, racial theory explained everything. And uh, he used to, he got a letter of gratitude from back from Hitler, and he used to show it to all his friends whenever they'd show up. He was very proud of getting that letter from Hitler. But what you had here was an, uh, an imposition of a category that was uh, had some meaning in the United States, which had a large black population, onto uh, a c countries in Europe where it had no meaning whatsoever. Okay, so if the, so, the next question is. Uh, if you say Croatians are white, the next question is, are Serbs white? <laughs> and then the answer, if, they, if the answer is yes to that, then what's all the trouble? What's all this fuss about over there? Why are you got you're all on the same team, right? You're all white. Why are you fighting with each other? Yeah, right. <laughs> so well. it, seems, it, it seems to me that we have to have we have to come up with a, a different if you want to understand reality as opposed to categories of the mind, you have to come up with some type of understand, deeper understanding of uh, the relationship between uh, ethnicity and race, or, or how, they, how the, these two things differ. Yeah. 
well the <laughs> you have thanks to mendel the the, the the science of genetics actually does allow you i mean do these white identitarians what do they say about i don't know michael jackson was he white or do, is it completely it's evolution. stupid it's evolution <laughs> It must be either this complete. Proof, <laughs> it must be proves that, that white people evolve from black people. He's living proof. He's the missing link. Yeah, it must be either. Actually, either. actually I was in. I was in. Uh, I was in Kenya, and I was giving a lecture at a hospital in Kenya. And the man, the doctor, stood up and he said, "And now I'd like to introduce to you Dr. Michael Jackson." <laughs> And I walked up and I said, I said, no, my name is Michael Jones. He said, but I can understand why you find this confusing because both Michael Jackson and I are white boys from Indiana. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> well, this, this, this white guy, I mean, this white, white theory, white, uh, white boy theory is either, either completely uh, superficial and, and, and naive or, or it has to refer to genetics, uh, and what does what genetic does allow you is that by by taking your blood sample you can see uh, where your paternal lineage comes from. So you have maybe I don't know how, why why this this uh, it's called the haplogroup. group. It, it the haplogroup, group. If you belong to the same haplogroup, group. Uh, you descend from the same uh, male ancestors. It's that simple. No matter how much money you throw at it, and if you look around all these couple groups, uh, you get the, this ridiculous things like uh, Adolf Hitler and uh, Albert Einstein having the same uh, ancestors, basically. Yes, and they, they, well, and they their ancestry the same language. So maybe yeah. maybe that. And the funny thing is, they, they, their, their ancestors are not European, but are not Middle Eastern either. <laughs> the haplogroup E comes from Northern Africa, so you have basically Muammar Gaddafi having the haplogroup E, uh, just like uh, your ex-president Barack Obama. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of funny. Okay, so basically, when you when you look at it in this, let's say, gen genetical way. You have only maybe 20 to 30 percent of people in Europe having European descent. It's, it's totally makes, makes no sense. It's, it's yes. So I have a question for you. Is Tom Sunich white? Yeah, <laughs> he is. <laughs> he is because it's well, his religion. Was he born? Was he born white or was he born Croatian? He's probably born Catholic. Then he converted mm -hmm. to whiteness. So he wasn't born white then. No. no. See, this is the, the big question: is uh, when the Lithuanians uh, show up in Chicago, if if you're in Vilnius, are you white or are you Lithuanian? Wow. So the Lithuanians moved to Chicago, and then Martin Luther King shows up in their neighborhood, in Marquette Park. Before Martin Luther King showed up, he, they thought they were Lithuanians. When Martin Luther King shows up, they're suddenly white. Yeah. Well, uh, by listening to your to your uh, to your talks, uh, it seems that uh, it, that was the plan. <laughs> I think it was the plan. So the question, I think, it is exactly that. In other words, the great triumph of social engineering in America was to convince Lithuanians that they were white. Because once you become white, you don't have an identity or you have the, the identity is what they determine for you. If you're a Lithuanian, you can say, well, my, my, I speak Lithuanian. My parents speak Lithuanian. We eat certain kind of food. We go to church here and so on and so forth. You have that definite identity, but they move them. They use the black, uh, blacks as proxy warriors to move into Chicago break up the ethnic neighborhoods, and then you drove these people out into the suburbs. And once they got to the suburbs, they became white. So did Tom Sunich move to the suburbs? Is that what happened with Tom Sunich? I think he spent too much time in France or something like that. 
Okay. What I, when if we are if we are talking about the local identity, uh, at least in European sense or in the Balkan sense, uh, here the identity is is, uh, is synonymous to religion. I mean, that's right. The religion forms the identity, which evolves into uh, nations, into ethnicity here. But the problem is that. Uh, that different religions uh, bring with it uh, different value systems. So I'd like to talk to you about that, about, uh, let's say, different values uh, associated with different religions here. Maybe yeah. to, to, to go back into the apostolic times, if, if the church is the true Israel and if, if the church is, let's say, the people of God, uh, is there, can it be reconciled that you must become a Jew or circumcised in order to become the Israel or the people of God? How, 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 is, that, how yes. is that reconcilable with Catholicity or with Logos? Okay. The, 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 we, the issue now, it gets down to the Jews. What were the Jews? at the time of Christ, okay? They were an ethnic group that had been chosen by God to be the vehicle of his religion, his revealed religion, uh, which was, uh, at the time of Jesus Christ, it was known as the Mosaic Covenant, okay? So you had an identity here of religion and ethnicity, okay? This was the big struggle in the church at the beginning, at its very beginning, after Christ died, the Jews are keep thinking, well, are we a religious group or are we an ethnic group? If we look at the Greeks, you know, the Greeks are an ethnic group. How do we know they're an ethnic group? Because of the language they speak. Language is the determinant of ethnicity, the main determinant of ethnicity. But they've got a religion. Well, their religion is a false religion. So it doesn't matter when we preach to the Greeks, you just say, you got to forget all that stuff about Zeus. You can still eat what you eat. You can still drink the wine that you drink and so on and so forth. All those ethnic customs, you can keep them, but you got to get rid of the religion and you have to adopt a new religion. And it's pretty clear cut when you're a Greek. It's pretty clear, but it's not clear when you're a Jew. Because you've got a re an ethnic group that is intimately bound up with a religion. And not only that, <laughs> you have certain practices that determine your standing as a Jew. So you have dietary laws. And you have circumcision to give you the two main issues. And the question is, well, when the Greeks start coming into the church, do they have to be circumcised? In other words, do you have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian? This was a huge crisis in the church at the beginning. <coughs> and St. Peter <coughs> came down on the side of the Jews. <coughs> and St. Paul came down on the side of the Greeks. And basically, St. Paul had to go to Jerusalem and he had to rebuke St. Peter to his face and say, you cannot, you have no right to impose the law that we could not follow on converts. You can't have this separate uh, super Christian status among a certain group simply based on their DNA. This would be racism. Jesus Christ repudiated this racism when he talked to the Jews, when the Jews tried to claim that they were the seed of Abraham. And the crisis was resolved in favor of St. Paul, which means that we had to separate the Jewish religion from the Jewish ethnicity. And the religion could carry forward now without regard to any, it was open to any ethnicity now. And that's what allowed it to spread throughout Europe. If St. Paul, if St. Peter had won that battle, Christianity would never have left Jerusalem. It would never gone anywhere. It would have, it would have stayed there. This, we had to make this crucial distinction. So now, we have in the United States what you might call a neo-converso crisis right now. 
because you have Jews now who are converting who still think they're Jews because they have a Jewish ethnicity and they can't seem to distinguish between Jewish ethnicity and Jewish religion. Now that's problematic because what is the Jewish religion now? Who knows? Who knows? It's not the, the temple, the religion of Moses because they don't have a temple. And so in many ways you have as many Jewish religions as you have Jewish people, but they, they, they do agree on things like anti-Semitism, for example. Every Jew is against anti-Semitism. They don't know what it means, but they're against it. And so now you have Jews coming into the church who are willing to accuse fellow Catholics of being anti-Semites. In other words, they're bringing Jewish baggage into the church. This anti-Semitism is not part of Catholic life. It's a Jewish prejudice that came into existence over the past hundred years or so. They have not cast this off. This is not what, what conversion means. When you convert, you, you leave those old forms, habits of thought, you leave them behind you, and you take on a new identity as the new Israel. Now, you don't have to do it with things that are insignificant. So if you still like corned beef specials of the kind that you bought in the delicatessen in New York City, you can still eat a corned beef special. Nobody cares about that. But that's not what the essence of Judaism is. You have to reject, if you're a Jew and you come into the church, you have to reject the rejection of Logos, that is the identity of the Jewish people, and you have to take on the categories of the Catholic Church and not the enemies of the Catholic Church. What you're talking about is basically you have to throw off this tribal superiority and, and accept that that you are not the child of Abram because you are his descendant, but, but because you do what he did. That's right. Okay. So your DNA, your DNA is not going to save you. If you thought your DNA was special, you never should have joined the Catholic Church in the first place. You know what, because this, you know what this situation that you spoke just reminded me of? Reminded me of all these, let's say, uh, Eastern border Catholics here. And... What I'm aiming at is the is the Eastern Orthodox national churches. I mean, what's the difference of forcing someone to be Jew in order to be in the new Israel or to be a children of God and forcing someone to become, to be, I don't know, Bulgarian in order to speak Bulgarian in order to, to be a member of a Bulgarian church? Well, this I actually I have experience with exactly that. I was here. I was contacted by a group of Orthodox uh, who live in Alaska. They live on Kodiak Island off the coast of Alaska, and they came down here. And they they were all Protestants who had converted to Orthodoxy, and they had become Bulgarian Orthodox. But they're not Bulgarians. Well, they have to. <laughs> so, so it's so okay. You can become a Bulgarian, let's say if you learn the language, the Bulgarian language. But they didn't do that either. So they invited me to their convention. This is the National Bulgarian Orthodox Convention, and it was in Indianapolis. And they were all uh, musicians, the converts were all musicians, and they brought their band with them. And there was a Bulgarian band. Well, the Bulgarian band played Bulgarian music, and the, the other band played American music. And you had this kind of split there because of the problem of a, a national church. In other words, how do you, can you become a Bulgarian? Or do you have to become a Bulgarian in order to become a Christian? That, that, that becomes a problem. And I think there is an analogy between the idea of uh, becoming a, a, a Jew in order to become a Christian. I, th I, can, I can see similarities there. You know the Catholic Church. Was was also next similar? I mean, next similarity. I mean, if if you are if you are the chosen, I mean, if you are the people of God because you are, let's say, Bulgarian. Well, what about if there is some some nation that has some disputes with the Bulgarian nation? Well, it's obvious they are either stupid, either Russophobic or anti-Semitic. I mean, either genocidal. It must be some problem with these people that have some issue with us. It's, 
It's uh, well that that became that became the problem. And of course, with the Protestant Reformation, you had the introduction of national churches into Europe, which led to nationalism, which led to all of that fighting between countries that were supposedly all Christian. Because with with the Reformation, you had an English national church, a German national church, uh, Swedish national church, and so on and so forth. And it led to conflict between these groups because there was no overarching structure anymore that could adjudicate the differences. Well, not not only that, it's it's also, (laughs) it's, if, if, you, if by you, by you being a member of a certain nation, and that nation having its own church, I mean, like Church X of the X nation, <laughs> it kind of puts everybody else as some kind of a opponent, not not only not only political opponent, but also moral opponent and religious opponent. It it kind of it kind of gets all aligned. Uh, what I'm talking about, we can talk about uh, this 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 uh, very unfortunate example in the in the Balkans. Uh, I know you, that you written about this uh, Sur- Surmansi massacre, where where this uh, uh, let's say this uh, Sustasha killed a lot of Serbs and stuff. So basically, uh, we know about it. Because some some Catholic guy there uh, objected to that. I mean, some 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 priest objected to that, and wrote some kind of a whistleblowing uh, report and sent it back to to his superior. So he was being Catholic here means that you're Croatian. It's that simple. And so he was basically a good Catholic because. Even if you if you have some unfinished business with 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 the other nation, you can just I mean you can just kill them. So right. basically, you have you have almost everywhere where you have some some killing of the Serbs, you have some priests writing reports about it. So that's that's what that's how we know uh, going all the way up to the to the Archbishop uh, Stepinac, uh, also doing the same thing and announcing it. So basically. They were Croatians, but thanks, they were also good Catholics in, in the same time, at the same time. But, for example, the, the, the diocese where Shurmanci is, uh, Shurmanci is located, uh, they also done, uh, let's say, on the end of the war, that there were uh, around 4,000 Catholics missing from, the, from this diocese. And we don't know nothing about them, because on the other side, you had nobody writing a report about it. It's, and why is that? Well, the same thing, I guess, where, where it connects to America, you don't have you don't have any Americanist writing a report about nuking of Nagasaki. Well, because America is morally superior, it's. This is no. I mean, this is the enemy of the of, of the of somebody that has a morality on its side, and it's there is no moral problem about it. Well, but the problem the problem here arrived with Ante Pavlovich and this uh, anti-Catholic ideology. Yeah. I mean, the 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 Ustasha uh, were. I mean, Pavlovich. I think was a Muslim. He was certainly more sympathetic to the Muslims than he was to the Catholics, but he had to pretend that he had some type of Catholic sympathies because he was the head of the Catholic state. But as soon as they got, as soon as they got here, I mean, as soon as the Ustasha got here and signed, and uh, as soon as the Germans conquered Yugoslavia and then took over and the Ustasha came to power, they had to, they had to change the categories to suit the categories of the Germans, which were racial categories. Yeah, that's right. And so the and so the Germans the Germans came up. Well, we'll have to find out the racial differences between Serbs and Croats. Well, there are no racial differences between Serbs and Croats, so this this is not going to make any sense. But you introduced the idea of racial animosity, and once you introduce racial animosity, you've got an irreconcilable conflict because you can't change your DNA. So you're stuck. 
This is the problem. This is why I think the United States promotes racial categories, because they lead to conflict. And conflict between groups of people allows the ruler to rule in a, in a, in a more effective fashion. Divide et impera. Uh, uh, divide and conquer is the way we translate that into English. The, the, English, um, the, the British Empire used it, the Roman Empire used it, and the American Empire is using it. And so even at the beginning in Virginia, they created uh, this racial distinction. Obviously, black people from Africa and, and uh, indentured slaves from Scotland that came there as part of the punishment for the Jacobite rebellion, they look different. They obviously are different, come from different places. They look different. But in Virginia, they both were functioning as the proletariat, as the working class you know, on these farms. So as I said, as I said before, okay, are Croats white? Are Serbs white? Well, if you're both white, then there's no reason for conflict there. But there is conflict, therefore that distinction is meaningless. Okay, so what you're seeing here is basically how did how did Croats become white? Well, first of all, Hitler was influenced by Madison Grant. The only place where you were white at this point was America. And the only reason you were white in America is because there was a large black population there that was held in economic subjugation. So what you wanted to, what the people did was create, they, they were influenced by Darwin. They create a superstructure around this idea. And then they start, to, America starts to have influence throughout the world. And at this point, Hitler comes under the influence of Madison Grant. Now, Hitler is stuck with a similar problem to the problem in Yugoslavia. In other words, you've got division according to religious lines. It was called the Reformation in Germany. And Hitler needs to project power. He needs to unite the country so it can project power outward in his foreign policy. So he tries to bring the Catholics and the Protestants together, and he fails. He can't do it. So at this point, he says, well, I have to go around that problem. I'll go back to German mythology. I'll take Wagner. Let's let's use Wagner as the vehicle to create a pan-Germanic unity based on race rather than religion, because religion only leads to division. Let's use race. And so he gives a speech and he talks about race. There is no German word for race. In the beginning, Wilhelm Schmidt wrote an article on this. I've written about it myself. Basically, in the beginning, the Germans would spell the word R-A-C-E, the same way the word was spelled in English. You cannot pronounce that word. You do not know. No one knows how to pronounce that word in German. It just doesn't. C doesn't work that way in the German language. So they changed it to Rasse. Okay. And uh, Hitler gave a speech on Rasse at Nuremberg. And then he suddenly realized it didn't work. You could not unite the Germans. Even he couldn't do it. And so he ended up reverting to the word folk, which was the original German word. And that means ethnic group. It doesn't really mean uh, race. So Hitler then comes and conquers Yugoslavia. And then he imposes these categories from America on the, the new state, the uh, Croatian Ustasha state. Yeah. Actually, and it, leads, it leads to conflict. Actually, even even the Nazis referred to to, to the Ustasha, uh, to their leader uh, Pavelic, as an Italian man, Mussolini's guy, here yeah, because actually Ustashas were were founded in Italy, and they had six training camps, six training camps in Italy, all financed by Mussolini and shoveled around Italy to be, let's say, to stay undercover and stuff. Uh, the deal was simple. Uh, he will he will put uh, his guy into uh, into place into office, and uh, the return favor was uh, the Croatian coastland that was uh, ceded to Italy to Mussolini's Italy. Right. And right. So basically, and also uh, this uh, Serbo-Croatian war. Also, I mean the, this 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 very very harsh. Uh, conflict between the Croats and the Serbs was also playing into this into this game because 
the the Serb population is just on the border where the Italian border of the coastline of their Italian, let's say, new acquired Italian coast uh, should be. So basically, it was a divided emperor again. Yes, but but you you have uh, Croatian and Serb identities are based on religion. There's no, no doubt about it. But you still have a problem. You still have, uh, let's say, Catholic faith on one side, and you have Serb Orthodox faith on the other side. And so, how it interacts? Uh, well, in in the let's say, in the in the Catholic. Intelligentsia, you have. Oh, okay. Let's cooperate. Let's let's do some projects together. Uh, let's show them. Let's uh, let's let's say uh, westernize them a bit. Uh, let's show them this advanced commerce and industry, and we'll win them over and maybe convert them. And uh, the Serb reaction is, okay, if you uh, if you are converting someone away from the Serbian Orthodox. Uh, uh, I mean, of their ethnic church, it means you are doing doing two things. You are you are denying him of his ethnicity, that's based on his church, and you are basically an antichrist or something that somebody that's, that's destroying his his church. You know, you have, and you have on the other side, when let's say, when you have even in the old Yugoslavia, you have this uh, this Serb-dominated area. When the Serbs had the upper hand, they just came here and say, "Okay, so we speak the similar language. Now, just become the Serbs. What? Why not? Why? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> is that simple? <laughs> Why won't you become Serbs? Yeah. So, is, is this is this dynamic that it's? I really don't know how how it, how it can be resolved. I mean, it can be it can be a, a coexistence, but it's. Well, I asked the the American professor uh, that's into geopolitics, uh, some kind of a Catholic university. We had a talk, and he was so into the geopolitics. And I asked him, "What's the geopolitical function of a Catholic church? It should be uh, go around and uh, bring the nations into the church, you know, preach the gospel and baptize the nations." But what is the geopolitical function of a Eastern Orthodox National Church? Their function is not to proselytize and to. It's basically to to acquire some temporal uh, reward for them as the new Israel. I mean, it's you have you have two pretty much different agendas here in place. Yeah, well, actually, one of that Bulga that Bulgarian bishop did say that uh, they did they should spend. He put it this way: we should spend more time uh, evangelizing. That's what that's what he told me, which is a way of saying, but without acknowledging the problem of uh, uh, how does a national church evangelize all the nations of the world? The Jews had to get over that idea before the church could spread. The Jews had to basically put aside their status as God's chosen people in order for the church to survive. The church had to rework that from the old Israel, which which identity was biological and ethnic, into a new identity of the new Israel, where it uh, did not require any one ethnicity, that there was a kind of universality to it that transcended all nations. Well, yes, because you have this. <laughs> I, I can give you an example of one, uh, one, let's say, national Orthodox church in in our vicinity. You have this uh, their uh, their top priest, their uh, let's say metropolitan metropolitan bishop, uh, giving the highest church award to to the country's president. Now you would imagine that it's something about morality, maybe abortion or some that kind of stuff. But it was uh, because of the increased military and economical might and the state and the statute of the state. And at the same time, the the prime minister is actually a, 
some lesbian married to her partner her partner so it it kind of it has the the priorities here are not very religious the the priorities here are let's say a bit a bit, <laughs> a bit more temporal <laughs> so what uh, what's interesting here is how it connects to the to the question of usury. Uh, I know you've spoken you've spoken a lot, and when defining the usury, you like to talk about uh, compound interest. Compound interest, it's I agree, it's anti anti natural, it's 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 evil, but it's not precisely a definition of usury. The Pope said once about compound interest that's usury upon usury so you have compound interest basically being <laughs> let's say a double usury uh, what was how how this the, this notion of of the ethnic church and the chosen people come up into the usury topic when you have two people and uh, they both invest in some kind of a business or some kind of enterprise uh, you have this partnership but when you have a usurious situation, is when one of the two guys that are into this business takes all the pain and all the risk, and the other one has a guaranteed profit. Basically, another one is a creditor, or the another one is a bank. And so, when in the old days, where there was not this this kind of a, a neoliberal economic brainwashing. You had the people just asking, "Hey, wait a minute! How comes that that I'm taking all the pain and you are you are you have a right right to, to to constant profit?" Well, it's because he's chosen, right? He is a member either of the chosen tribe, either of the chosen caste, or he is a member of of a nation that is the new Israel. So you basically have all these cultures. That have this 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 uh, let's say that divide the humanity into uh, let's say upper echelon and lower echelon uh, historically good at usury. You have the India that also has this. It's not in their case. It's not the chosen church or the ethnic church. It's the chosen caste that basically has the right for to the to the profit of the the other poor guy. You have I think yeah, the, I have a friend. I have a friend in India who said the caste system is basically based on usury. Yeah. The caste system was created to justify usury. I fully agree. I fully agree. And it's if you if you are looking uh, as a chosen guy versus the non-chosen, let's say lower people, it makes perfect sense. Uh, but the problem is, it's uh, it's also uh, let's say the problem is it's also Christianized. You have the the Armenian Church as a big example. Uh, in the in the Ottoman Empire, let's say in the Muslim world, the main creditors were the Armenian. In every almost every significant time in history, you have some Armenian guy that's a, that's a main creditor of the state. You have one uh, Jezirlian Armenian guy that's so wealthy that he built his own bridge with his own money <laughs> in, in in Istanbul something like Brooklyn Bridge uh, privately built I mean it's it's uh, is the same is let's say the same uh, ethnicity tribalism versus universality problem uh, let's say uh, copied to economic relations where you have this this not immoral situation where you have, where there should be a partnership in the sharing of risk. You have one one guy that is entitled to profit, and the other that takes all the risk. Oh shit! <clears throat> can you hear me? I can hear you now. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you have. I these, think the these early justifications in from from a religious corner, you know. What, what you saw, uh, the same thing happened in England. You basically, with the Reformation, you created an elite that had more uh, in common with the Jews, 
than it did with the English people. And so you created an upper class uh, there that exploited its own people. Uh, and eventually those people succumbed to Jewish uh, usury over the course of the 19th century. And the Churchill family is an example of that. But I think, I think you're right in defining, if you define usury more broadly, uh, what you're talking about is no shared risk. There's no shared risk. One, one person provides the money and the other person takes all of the burden of risk upon himself. And if he doesn't uh, pay it back, then he loses everything. There's no shared risk in a loan. Yeah. If you're not willing to share risk, this is the gospel principle of the the story of the talents. If you're not willing to share risk, you do not deserve a return on your investment. Yeah. That's why usury is is immoral. You're not sharing risk. And that's right. That's right. It, it was it was very the the big battle wars were at uh, when in the councils of Lyon, I think. Uh, where they they uh, they they hired the the punishment to the to the to the users even to the extent that if it was a known user uh, he was denied of a Catholic funeral or even if you uh, lend your property uh, to a banker to to establish I don't know to, to run a bank in your house that you're renting him for the purpose of banking, uh, you're also committing a mortal sin. It was very, I'd say, very anti-capitalist <laughs> in these days. But, yeah. but somehow these this new traditionalists, I don't know if they are, they are they're probably pro-banking. And, and, uh, and Capitalism is state-sponsored usury. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, there's another another subject that you touched in a few of your talks. It was uh, maybe it was interesting, so I looked into it. Uh, it's the the geocentrism uh, stuff, uh, the geo geocentric uh, problem. Let's say. Uh, I'll just we can do short about this, and then and then we can end the talk. Uh, what I, what I figured out is, uh, if, if 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 Jesus is is the Logos and he descended to the to the certain place in a certain time, that place must be central in the universe. That was the logic uh, behind the Pope's, uh, let's say, giving the central place to the to the to the planet. It was it was more of a philosophical statement, but it had, uh, let's say, planetary <laughs> or astronomical implications. Uh, so basically, uh, all this this geocentricity uh, it's it's a very interesting battle, and uh, I don't know if you if you mention uh, Einstein and. Uh, I know that you wrote about uh, Heisenberg. Uh, is it in, also in your Logos book? Uh, well, the, uh, the Heisenberg, we did no. I did not talk about geocentrism in the Logos book. We did a symposium. Bobson Genesis has written a book on geocentrism, and uh, I, I think he, I think he's right. Uh, I think that the Earth is the center of the universe. Uh, but the the from I did not cover that that. The, the chapter on Heisenberg deals with the collapse of the atomic theory. That was basically that they the, the theory of uh, Democritus, uh, that uh, everything was atoms in the void, collapsed under Heisenberg's, during Heisenberg's lifetime. Uh, when he realized you could split the atom, which meant it wasn't an atom, and you could keep splitting until it turned into energy. And at that point, there's no material basis for the universe. What Heisenberg ended up saying was it's a form. The atom is a form. It's a platonic form. In other words, it's an idea that organizes things, uh, it organizes matter in a way that is independent of matter. So the soul is the form of the body. Uh, every atom in your body is replaced. Every molecule is replaced every seven years. 
So what is it? You've lived longer than seven years. What is it that maintains the unity of that, of you, of you, mind and body? Well, it can't be matter because there's nothing material in you that existed when you were born. It's all been replaced. And what we call that principle of unity is the soul. And that's what Heisenberg reverted to at the end of his life. He became a Platonist. Now, Einstein uh, basically made the whole geocentric, heliocentric universe debate irrelevant because he said the what moves around what is depends on the position of the observer. So at that point, you can say, well, you know, if you're standing on the moon, well, the sun goes around the moon. If you're standing on the earth, the sun goes around the earth. And then you have the, well, why, why should we give priority to the earth as opposed to anything else? And I don't deal with that in the book, but Bob Sanjanis deals with it in his book. Well, it, it's... A- I mean, he has, first of all, to, just to give you a part of the problem here, uh, Newton said that there was a force called gravity, but he couldn't explain what it was. And he also, if it's atoms in the void, then you're saying that planets are basically an extrapolation of that on a much larger scale. Well, if it's just the void, what is there between the Earth and the moon? Is it a void? Well, if, if it's a void, if there's nothing between the Earth and the moon, then they are touching. Well, they're clearly not touching. So what the point I'm trying to make here is that if you have this universe turning around the Earth, you will create a gravitational field because of the centripetal motion. And that would explain something that Newton could explain, and that would make the theory superior to the one that Newton had. Well, what was uh, what, what I find uh, funny about, uh, I mean, one aspect of, uh, of uh, Einsteinian, uh, of the Einstein, let's say, uh, model, uh, was it's it in a way if you look philosophically is used the materialism in order to explain away uh, the, the two exper- one experiment that occurred before him uh, because what the old physics I mean pre Einsteinian physics uh, told that uh, we are immersed in some kind of an ether that's basically something like a lake. That, and the, the, the light is a wave in this lake. So basically, if you have this, this, this ether, this lake, uh, you have a reference point. You right. can say, you can make an experiment and determine, uh, well, if ether is a lake, are we ship that is going through the lake? Or, and they made an experiment and it turned out that we are an island standing still in the middle of a lake and the other stuff are the ships going through it? So basically, if you eliminate... It was the Michelson Morley. Michael yeah, that, that's, that's right, that's right. So if you eliminate the lake, if you said there's no lake, uh, like, uh, the light is not a wave, it's like some kind of a particle, it's like a brick flying into you, you eliminate the... you basically eliminate some kind of a reference. reference uh, well, I, no, Newton, Newton would say, obviously, that the moon affects the tides on the earth. The moon affects the movement of tides on the earth. Well, how does it do it? If it's a void, then you cannot explain action at a distance. There's no way that that mass could communicate to the mass here on earth unless there were a medium between it, which would be like what you said, like water in a lake. (laughs) So Einstein said there was no ether when it came to when in special relativity, and then when he got to general relativity, he said there was ether. But you cannot have action at a distance without ether. You cannot have it. it doesn't. It's impossible. And Newton could not explain action at a distance. Yeah. What? What? Also, it's a funny thing that happened with this Newtonian uh, physics. He basically said, uh, let's say the the velocity of light is a constant, is a c. Well. Uh, then, um, by time passing and by technology, uh, we, we let's say we learned about this uh, geo. Uh, it's called. It's basically an effect that mass has on the clock. Uh, when when the, when uh, when a clock is near the it's near the mass, it, the clock runs faster. Basically, it's the the effect that gravity 
has on every clock around. So basically, Newton said, okay, speed of light is a constant, but uh, how and uh, if you put the clock on the side of the Earth where there is a moon, the clock will run at a different rate because of the mass on that side. So what happened is basically that we are measuring uh, the speed of light as, as constant on on all on <laughs> on every place on every place on the Earth. The measured speed of light is constant, and the only technical place that is possible to measure it as constant would be in the center of the mass, because any mass with any presence of any mass with this will distort the reading of the clock that will temper the speed of light. I don't know if you can follow me, if you are, if you are following what I'm saying. In order to measure a speed, you have you you must have a meter and a clock, and it's scientifically proven that the clock uh, changes its rate in the vicinity of the mass. Okay, and right. so basically, only only object when you could measure the speed of light as constant. To measure it, we are not talking about if it's a constant, if it's not. But if you are, if you are uh, succeeding in measuring it as a constant, it must it must mean that the mass is equally, let's say, placed uh, around that object. That this object is what we would call in the center of the mass. So basically, what Einstein did, he he. Uh, he explained away the ether. He basically put an end to ether, but he did the worst thing for, <laughs> for let's say, for this debate of geocentrism, and uh, because he put the Earth in the center of the mass. So somebody, the, the short story is somebody figured it out in the 1980s, and they proclaimed that uh, basically they banned the measurement of the speed of light. That say there is no such thing as a meter. A meter is a distance that light passes in x seconds, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's funny. It's it's like basically it's like some kind of a eternal, uh, let's say, debate about philosophical problem that has some implications into into physics. So it's yes. It would be interesting. Yeah. What you said, it was the the guy that that uh, that uh, writes about this this stuff. Uh, Robert Sungenis, S U N G E N I S. He's written a book called Gal Galileo Was Wrong. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, Mike. Thank you very much for your time. Okay, Tony. I'll be in touch. Good luck. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye.